ride with me in my foul life. Hello, everybody. Chad Belding back at you. Another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Thank you all so much again for the growth of our podcast, our sister podcast, This Life Ain't For Everybody. All of the TV show ratings that we're getting out of the Outdoor Channel. Thank you guys so much for your support of the Foul Life Television. Please continue to support the sponsors and partners that support all of our brands here at the Foul Life and Bandit and Avery. This life ain't for everybody. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by our friends out of Louisiana, Mojo Outdoors, Terry Denman, the late Mike Morgan, Chuck Smart. Since 1999, they have literally revolutionized duck hunting the way men and women hunt ducks. If you've never been under a cloud of mallards in North Dakota cornfield with six, four to six mojos going in your decoy spread, I highly, highly suggest you, even if it's only one time in your life, to see the power that can happen in a dry field in peas in Canada, corn, wheat, rice, it doesn't matter. I've seen mallards do crazy things over a mojo. If you don't have them in the field, it's probably not going to happen. More than likely, the odds are not in your favor to make them finish and see them act like mallard ducks under those blue skies and sunshine, a little 15-mile-an-hour breeze, brisk temperatures. Mojo Outdoors, check them out at mojooutdoors.com. The King Mallard, the entire Elite Series, they got it going on. I could talk about mojo all day and the memories that it has helped our crew crew achieve and build over the last decade we've been friends with terry denman and all of the crew down in louisiana we've stayed at their house we've been to the office we've been in hunting camp with them and they're some of my favorite people in the entire industry. Terry's become not only a good friend but a business mentor a hunting mentor and i uh, he is absolutely probably responsible for more harvested mallards across canada in america over the last 21 years than probably any other brand um in the in the industry so and quite and quite frankly i would uh, i would bet money on that and he is our guest today mr terry denman welcome thank you chad very good to be here i don't know if that last statement is true but i would say that as a whole i bet you the mojo mallard or the mojo you know product line is responsible for a good portion of the harvested ducks since 1999. Would that be a fair assumption or is that kind of just throwing something out in the, out in the atmosphere? Well, I don't think there's any question, Chad, that um, the advent of the spinning wing decoy, you know, if you want, AKA Mojo, uh, you know, help people kill ducks. Uh, It's been a wonderful, wonderful tool, you know, for 20 years in attracting ducks and um, uh, it'd be a good time maybe to throw in <clears throat> into that, um, that, you know, the, the main purpose of a spinning wing decoy is and always has been long range attraction. And, you know, we did not do a good job. In fact, we did a horrible job. In fact, we didn't do anything, uh, you know, to educate the hunter on that in the beginning. And because in the early days, you know, ducks just want to come up there and land right on top of it. And it, it didn't it didn't cause you to think that it was attracting these ducks from a long, long ways off. Uh, and so really, you know, that's how it's been so effective is not so much as a finishing tool, but as attracting ducks to your spread that otherwise would never see your spread that day. Yeah, and I love hearing you say that because right now the series that we're doing on the Foul Life podcast is called The Essentials of Duck Hunting. And when I talk about the essentials, whether you're an outfitter or a guide or a not, you know, a weekend warrior or an everyday duck hunter that just loves to chase them all over the country, follow the migration, there's things that you have in your arsenal. There's things that you do to 
make sure that you acquire consistent success. And I think that that's the goal of any duck hunter or I, that, that was my goal is that it's so awesome when it happens that you really start to try to figure out how to consistently experience that, which it's very hard with all of the different factors that go into it with the migration and mother nature and weather patterns and food sources and, and, and refuges and closed zones and everything that goes into being a migratory bird hunter. I wanted to come up with a list of essentials. So we came up with obviously bird population is, is, it's real. It's it's essential, but it's not. It's that's kind of out of our control. Conservation plays a big role in that, Mister Terry. As far as the the sweat equity and the financial support that hunters give to conservation organizations like DU or Delta, California Waterfowl. Um, you know a lot about that. You have a lot of history with those companies. But then you get into the essentials that we can control: the scouting, the gun, the ammo, the duck call the decoys and then you get into the knife which you can you know harvest or you know process and butcher the bird with and then you get into the grill and the recipe and the sustainability and eating the wild game but in all of that there is what we're talking about right now in within decoys on top of decoys is the strobe effect the spinning wing the long distance attractant why do ducks always figure out a way to end up in your decoys or over your decoys when you get out to take go number one you know like you get up and you got to take a pee it seems like you go out and ducks are there and everybody's like it happens every time well there's got to be some science behind that and i've heard you even say that they're seeing that movement they're seeing something that attracts them from a long ways away and it brought them over there so talk to me a little bit about your your, your ideology on that as far as when you're when they're far away, they're seeing that sh- that that strobe effect. Is that what you call the spinning wing? Is a strobe effect? Uh, that is correct, Chad. But uh, let's take that a little bit further. Uh, at Mojo, or me personally, either one, uh, uh, to deal with motion in duck hunting, you must you have to break it down into two types of motion. You have to break it down into what we call simple motion. That's just something moving and into the strobe effect of a spinning wing decoy because they're not, they're not really associated very well. And that's another thing that we didn't, you know, uh, we didn't educate the hunters on very well. The wings are moving on that decoy. So you say, okay, well, that's motion. And, uh, and I've heard a lot of people say that they thought that, that that movement of that wing was what would attract them, much like it would if you had a, a flapping wing decoy, you know, or you had a swimming decoy, something like that. <clears throat> but those things are not associated. Simple movement, what we call simple movement, is things moving. And ducks are said to be able to, to detect motion about three and a half times better than they can detect uh, a, a steel object. So you walk out into decoys, as you mentioned before, they see it. Uh, think about this. When you walk out into the decoys and they see you, they come to you, they see that motion, and they'll get inside of 100 yards and maybe down as close as 40 before they figure out what you are, that you're a man, and they flare at that point. Because anybody that's hunted ducks very long, you and I, and you know, the, your other listeners that hunted ducks very long, you know, you have killed ducks standing out in a decoys like that. You just kind of hunker over so you don't look quite so much like a human being, and they'll fly up there sometimes off enough for you to kill them. Well, what does that tell us? That tells us that they saw that motion, they were attracted to it, and they came to it, but they had to get pretty close to you before they could tell that you were a human. You know, and that's a pretty important point in studying uh, in studying motion. And if you watch a uh, if you watch a live set of ducks, uh, uh, unless they're just 
you know, kind of sleeping, loafing, what they're doing most of the time. There's a lot of movement and a lot of noise, you know, not quacking noise, you know, duck, duck vocal noise, uh, and water noise and a set of wild ducks. So, you know, you take a, a, a set of decoys, a decoy spread sitting out there, you know, static on the water, they don't look a whole lot like the wild set of ducks do. And, uh, and so it's that motion that brings realism into it. Now, leave that thought for a moment and go to the spinning wing decoy, go to the Mojo Mallard or King or Mojo King Mallard or whatever, whatever spinning wing decoy you want to talk about. That device is generating an optical flash, and it only generates it when you have a turning blade that's dark on one side, white or white on the other side, turn it at a particular RPM. And over the years, we've kind of played with that and played with that, and, you know, uh, Conditions when you're duck hunting are so different every day. You probably never get the same, the same exact uh, conditions two days in a row. But so it so it would vary with the conditions. But you know we know that it has to turn about 400 RPMs for it to produce that flash. Once you get less than that, less than that, it's no longer operating as a spinning wing decoy. Even though the wings are still spinning, it becomes a simple motion device. But when it's generating that flash. Uh, uh, ducks and other birds, uh, you know, birds that uh, use that mechanism, they can see it for a long, long way, maybe miles on a clear day, maybe miles. And you know yourself, Chad, if, you, if, you're, if you're a quarter of a mile or half a mile away from a mojo working, you don't see the decoy, you don't see the wings, you just see a flash like a light bug was flashing over there. And uh, that's how ducks find other ducks. And so that's the long-range attraction I'm talking about. You know, that duck might might have going to be have flown five miles uh, other side of your decoy spread. He's not going to see simple motion from that far. He's not going to see your static decoy from that far. But he can see on certain days. He, I call it a he. It could be a she. It could see. Uh, it could see that optical flash, and it it and it. It mimics what ducks do, what live ducks do, and so they see that. There's live ducks. They come to it. And that's how the spinning wing decoy uh, uh, works so great. Uh, now, you know, in the last few years, especially down where I'm at, I'm in Louisiana, you know, and, and in Louisiana, by the time we get up here, all you guys done done everything you want to to them. You know, y'all done caught them and shot them, and they know duck calls them and blind decoys. They know mojos. They know everything. They're pretty tough to hunt. And so uh, all down through the, you know, the lower, lower part of the, of the different flyways, uh, when you get these pressured ducks, you know, they learn, uh, but they have to get close to learn. They learn that that decoy may not be a real duck. And that's what the hunters call, you know, they declared the ducks. Uh, and I believe my theory about that, and, you know, I, and you've been around me, you know, I think about this stuff all the time. Uh, you know, my theory about that is the typical spinning wing decoy is too much flash. It's much more flash than a duck is. And so they learn to pick up on that. Uh, 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 and so then they just learn, they learn it's danger, you know. And so like any other wild creature, if they can't learn to detect danger after a certain period of time, we would extinct them, you know. So uh, uh, they can, when they highly pressure, tell the difference between a spinning wing decoy and a lab duck. And that's what I really want to get into you, Mr. Terry, with you, Mr. Terry, is how do you instruct a in consumer or somebody that makes that purchase and has it? And now they got the mindset, go put it in the kill hole, turn it on and let it roll. Well, there's a lot of things out there to keep in mind. There is 
There's overcast days against sunshine. There's low ceiling versus high ceiling. There is the color of the wing, the amount of flash. Do we cover that wing? What does Mojo offer in that case? Why did Mojo ever come up with a remote control? What is the significance of the remote control and why should a duck hunter, goose hunter, a combo hunter understand why that's in the box and what what part that can play in the hunt? Is it just to turn off when there's Canada geese coming or speckle bellies or is it smart to turn it on and off with ducks or where do you put the duck? Do you use a floating duck decoy underneath some branches and overhang? Let's get into how you teach somebody to actually use it to where we teach people how to use a duck call. We teach people how to shoot. We teach people how to train a dog and handle a dog. We teach people how to set a decoy spread. And you always heard about the J pattern or the W pattern or the X pattern or the horseshoe. There's a lot of different ways, um, to approach this, but how do we teach somebody to use a mojo and not just have the mindset that go stick it out there where we want the ducks to land and keep it running? There's got to be a lot of strategy in this. Like you're saying, if you're going to use this from September through, um, you know, the last legal day of duck season in late January, figure out how to use it and maximize and capitalize off what this tool was built to do. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, Chad. You're exactly correct. And we ought to do a better job of teaching the people, you know, how to do that. Uh, uh, some time ago, you know, we had a we had a saying that we used to say, early season, put it right in the killing hole. You know, mid-season, put it outside the killing hole. Late season, go see if you can hide it under, under a, a bush or something like that. Um, uh, and basically, uh, you know, I have a rule, and uh, I've, I've done this, I've given this rule in quite a few different uh, uh, interviews, and my rule is let the ducks tell you what to do. Uh, now, you, you know, for, for, for that to work for you very good, you got to know a good bit about, about duck hunting and about decoying ducks, but if you don't know, you know, you're only going to learn one way, get out there into the, into the laboratory, you know, get out in the field, start hunting ducks. But So, and the more you know about all those different factors that you quoted long ago, the better you can come at setting your spread up the first time. Um, when I say the first time, first thing on your hunt, when you get out there and put out a spread, you're going to hunt, okay? So you want to put out that spread and all the different devices, uh, you know, that you can use to help you in that spread as close to what you think the ducks are going to need that day as you can. And the, and the longer you hunt, the better you will get at that. But after that, you've got to watch those ducks. And when I say watch the ducks, you got to watch their, 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 their uh, uh, attitude and their body movements. And you can do that from a duck blind. If you'll just start staring at them, you can do it from a duck blind. You know, one thing hunters ought to do is go out into a duck blind when they're not hunting and just seeking a decoy them ducks because you're going to learn a lot more when you're not hunting than you are when you're hunting, but just because your focus is in a different place. You know, when you're not hunting, now you're focused on, okay, what exactly is that bird doing? But you can watch their attitude, you know, and their body movements, and you can tell a whole lot about it. And after that, you don't have to let the, you know, ducks tell you what to do. And uh, uh, you've hunted with us before, you know, we're kind of, uh, infamous, I guess it would be for just jumping out of the blind and go rearranging everything. And then we get back in there and they don't do what they won't do. We just jump out of the blind. But the natural human inclination is just to sit there. And, and you know, if you sit there, uh, whatever that first group of ducks did, uh, well, maybe not at first light. At first light, ducks are a little different. But once you get a little light, you know, they all do it just about exactly the same thing unless some conditions change. So whatever that first group does, they probably all go do and if that's not doing what you need them to do, then start trying to figure out what to change, you know, and you really can't write a rule 
or a set of rules to tell people how this. You've got to just kind of tell them how they can learn for themselves. But if they, uh, you know, if they come into your decoy spread and you run in one or more mojos, and that's another thing, how many mojos do you need to, need to run? It's different on different days. It's different depending upon, you know, how pressured the ducks are that you're trying to decoy. But uh, uh, if you watch them work and you're getting ducks to come look at your spread, you know, then then, then probably that spinning wing decoy is, is doing you a lot of good because it's bringing ducks from afar over to your spread. But if they don't want to land right on top of it, then the obvious conclusion is that something wrong with my spread. When they get there, they don't think it's live ducks. So what is that? Well, if you think it's the spinning wing decoy, if you think it's the it's the uh, 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 mojo, then you know do something about it. If you got several of them out there, you might want to turn off some of them. Uh, and then you know, as it gets later in the season, we will move ours completely out of the decoy spread, and we may move it a hundred yards out of the decoy spread. I put them on the dry ground behind me. Because what you want to do, you want that to still uh, continue to be a beacon, if you will. You want it to attract ducks from a long way off. So if they don't want to land right on top of it, then get it out of the way where you want them to land, but don't give it up. So many hunters say, well, they fired ducks, let's take them out and spray it. Let's eliminate them from our spread. In my opinion, and, and I think it's quite obvious that that's the wrong thing to do because you give up your long-range attraction when you do that. So, um, you know, I, I, my rule in, in – in, in uh, your question is just let the ducks tell you what they want to do. And, uh, you know, uh, if ducks are uh, wrapped up in huge rafts where you're hunting, you want a lot of decoys. If they don't, if there's a little bit of small groups that coming along and, and it's late season, then, you know, don't use so many decoys. I'm talking about static decoys. You don't make your spread look like a smaller group of, of decoys. And then, uh, you know, there's all kinds of other motion that's good. Uh, if you go back to the statement I made earlier where it said that ducks can see uh, motion, we're back to simple motion now, ducks can see motion three and a half times better than they can see static objects, then, you know, that motion can be extremely good for you or extremely bad for you. That means they can see you in a blind, you know, when you move. So that's why it's so important not to move. Uh, I, I've hunted with a lot of people. I'm sure you have too. You know, they may be still in the blind and they got their gun out there and they're waving their gun barrel around. Well, the ducks see that, you know, see that gun barrel. So you got to take motion and make it work for you because it can work against you just as easy as it can work for you. Exactly. I, I agree. And you said a few things there, Mr. Terry. First of all, the size of the decoy spread. Some people see, I've, I've seen our video footage of, let's take, for example, honey break. And I try to tell them, you know, through my education process of talking to you or Drew and, and, and what the natural state of that area was of that where, you know, the flood part of where honey break is. And when, when there was some clear cutting done and farming started to take place, those ducks continued to come to that area and they would raft in those large groups. So a lot of the decoy spreads you see at honey break in front of their big blinds and you've been there several times is they're 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 hunting over a lot of decoys well that's because that's what that area calls for just what you just quoted but there also is some areas around the honey break lodge where there's a lot less decoys and they might be a little mallard wood hole or a buck brush hole or something like that that is off of the beaten path that really wasn't part of that landscape where the ducks were rafted in those gigantic numbers and there's a lot of decoy spreads down there that are 40 dozen decoys maybe and that's a lot of decoys so with what you said rings true is we don't want to give somebody the misconception that to 
kill ducks the way that they do in 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 Honeybreaker, Louisiana, you need to have a ton of decoys if you're up in a pothole in South Dakota. That's not the case. Um, the other thing that you said that I want you to touch on was. When you do take that decoy, that spinning wing mojo out of your decoy spread and you put it on the dry ground behind you or 100 yards downwind or upwind, whatever you're doing, talk to me. Do you put it upwind, downwind? Do you keep it visible? And then do you have that on a remote to where when they do see it and they're in the area, do you turn it off so now your duck call and your jerk string and your spread is the attractant? And third and final is when you have several in your spread, what is the significance of the height height of the poles do you mix them mid-range low to the water low to the dry ground higher up in the air so they see that one talk to me about those three things and if if you need me to remind you i know that's a lot but just start the size of those decoy spreads at honey break they're that big because that's what ducks did there historically right that's correct and you know honey break is located about uh, uh, 25 miles from the famous catahoula lake uh, we have a farm that's located about 25 miles from the famous Catahoula Lake. We're right up the river from Honey Break, and we've hunted that farm for uh, uh, many, many years. And and, uh, and so in some locations there, ducks are, are are congregating in large rafts, like you say. And in some places, they're they're not. And that's back to uh, let the ducks tell you tell you what to do. Uh, you know, on Catahoula Lake, if you've hunted there, I know you hunted with Honey Break quite a few times. I don't know if you went to Catahoula Lake with them or not, but, you know, they use jugs there, you know, milk jugs, and you've seen them do that. And, you know, like Real Foot, Foot Lake, you know, uses uh, milk jugs a lot, you know, and they paint them black. And uh, there's several theories about why they do that. And uh, uh, but But basically all the theories revolve around the ducks can see those jugs from much farther than they can see a static decoy, you know. And, uh, you know, theoretically, you would have to say, well, a spinning wing decoy would take the place of uh, place of the jugs. But I can't say that that's a fact. I don't know that for a fact. But uh, but but back to that, that's correct. You know, you uh, you have to uh, make your spread look natural. I have three rules for waterfowl hunting. Chad, and they're very simple. And you got the same three rules. You may just say I'm a little different than I do. You know, first is be where ducks want to be. You know, that's the X. And, you know, you cannot overemphasize that, you know. Uh, as we hunt, especially down here in the south, you know, we have lots of permanent blinds. California has lots of permanent blinds. So your ability to move around a little bit is, is more limited. Uh, but, you know, a duck will hit a place over here 100 yards from you and won't hit your spread one day. That's just the X. And uh, 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 and so that's rule number one, be where ducks want to do. Rule number two is be hit. That's just, you know, whatever blind you got, whatever you are, whatever you wear, whoever's with you, you know, if you could hide all that from ducks, if you could do rule one and rule two, you don't need anything else. You don't need a mojo. You don't need anything else. They come in there to land. If you if you hit and you don't scare them, they're going to land there. And rule number three is to make your decoy spread look natural, look like ducks. And, of course, it's very seldom you're going to get both rules one and rules two. So you got to go to rule three, which is you got to have a spread there that looks like live ducks, and that requires motion. You know, it doesn't necessarily require the long range of traction because they might have been within closer range anyway. But the long range of traction is certainly going to increase the number of ducks that take a look at your spread that day. And then you got to have some movement. You know, uh, two or three or four or five dozen static decoys sitting there, especially down south. We don't get much wind, and we don't get any at daylight. And it's just it's just calm. It's slick water calm. If you don't have something moving around, there's no way you can ask a duck to think that that's a set of live ducks. 
Now, some of them will, will land there. And, you know, I'm sure you'll get into this later, but, you know, uh, you know, one of the huge factors in, in uh, a duck hunt is how fresh are your ducks? How long have they been there? You know, if a front moves in fresh ducks, they're much easier to decoy. So the rule changes every day. You know, they'll stay that way for several days, and then they'll get stale. So the rules don't change every day. And, uh, you know, that's really about all you can tell a duck hunter about that. Uh, as far as the remote controls, and we, we make a lot of remote controls. We sell a lot of remote controls. And if you are hunting in, you know, with ducks and geese mixed, you know, they, they're almost a must because um, geese do not like to land around uh, spinning wing decoys. And they will. And we killed them when we forgot to turn the mojos off. But typically speaking, they don't like to come to them. So if the geese come, you need to be able to turn it off. That's the main use of a uh, of a spinning wing decoy. We don't use them that much for ducks. At Mojo, we don't. A lot of people do. What they want to do is they want to turn them off when the ducks get close. If the duck has, you know, somewhat pressured and don't want to land close to a mojo, we don't do that. That's when we just move our mojo over to the side some. And uh, 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 but they, you know, they they they're very popular. And uh, if that works for you to just to turn them off, uh, you know, when the ducks get close, then you know if it's working, keep on doing it. If it's not working, you know, change something. Uh, but you know, that's that's our theory on the remote controls exactly. As far as how many to put out there, uh, it, you know, again, it just kind of de- it depends on what the ducks want to do that day. Uh, we hunt with anywhere from one to eight or nine. And there are some days when you, if you'll put out eight or nine mojos, you'll kill a lot of ducks. Where if you put out one or two, you won't kill a duck. Uh, and, and a lot of us have been trying to figure out exactly what day that is, but, um, um, but it, it's very hard to define. You know, you can, you can get some parameters of it. You know, if you have a place that ducks fly over, you're on a flyway, but they don't typically land there. Well, then sometimes you can put out, uh, you know, eight or ten uh, decoys. You know, Harold Knight, Knight and Hale, uh, he set up a blind, uh, him and Earl Ben set up a blind in northern Tennessee, and they put out 40, 40. But this was a goose pit, and they said them ducks were flying over, but they never would land there. So Harold came to me and asked me, he said, you sell me uh, 40, uh, 40 mojos? And I said, yeah, we'll fix you up, Harold. And so next time I see him, I said, Harold, did that work? And he said, some days. I said, can you tell me what days it was? You know, Harold's a good hunter. You know Harold. He's a good hunter. And he said, no, I can't. But some days we'd, we'd turn on them 40 mojos, them ducks would land there, and, and some days they would not. So, you know, that, a duck hunter's never going to get a lot of just absolutely hard rules. And that's why I keep getting back to you kind of got to look up. You got to let the duck tell you. As far as how high to put them off the water, uh, if they work, on that particular day with those particular ducks, I typically like to keep mine down close to the water. In fact, I like the little floaters that we make. You know, they sit right on the right on the water. I think they look more natural. But there are days when you put them on a high pole, you know, they like to come. You put some on a high pole, you put some on a lower pole, kind of looks like a flock of ducks landing in there. I can't, I can't tell you, Chad, I wish I could. I'd give anything if I could answer that question, but I can't tell you which days is, is what. I've seen a few days when they didn't like to come around the high ducks. It's never going to be the problem with the low, with the low decoys. You know, if they're going to come to a mojo, they're going to come to a, 
a lower mojo. You put them up higher, <clears throat> they can see them, and I guess it simulates ducks. Uh, uh, yeah, a group of ducks uh, kind of landing. I, I made a statement early on in this conversation about dry field hunting and the power of it. I've heard stuff said um, in Canada, the fields are so big, the pea fields are so vast and so big that the birds are going in there to eat because of the abundance of the food and the dropped peas from the harvest season and the combines. But the fields are so big, how do you get them right over you? Without a mojo, you would never be able to do it. I've heard people say that you could do it if you're in a smaller field in North Dakota, western Minnesota, Montana, in a dry field. And I say, well, you might be able to if you're on the dead X, but I don't think you're going to get the power of it. You say that it's a long-range attractant, right, Um, that they bring them into the area. But in my experience of dry field hunting and a lot of guys are doing dry field hunting these days you know in in a lot of different areas of this country down where you live not so much california delta not so much but a lot of the areas of the midwest and canada are dry field hunting so with that in mind people say you know and you've said it yourself they're they're an attractant and they bring the ducks closer but in my experience and you tell me if i'm wrong if i get those ducks working and i hit my mojo to off and i've got their attention and they're in the area and the mojo did their job as a strobe effect and got those ducks from a long ways away to come into my vicinity giving me a chance to work them and harvest them when i turn that mojo off I'm saying 90% of the time they do not finish the way they do when the mojo stays on. Is that a true statement in your experience? And and what is your idea behind that or your, your opinion of that? Well, it is a true statement, uh, Chad. And as you know, in, in most of Canada, those fields, as you mentioned, are very, very large. And, you know, the way they hunt dry fields is they scout. You know, they scout all day long and they find the the best field they can get permission to go into it and go in there to, and the next morning and set up or the next afternoon, whichever one the ducks are feeding in there and set up. And if you've been there when they're trying to figure out where they want to put their setup there, and it's, it's, it's a, it's kind of a compromise between a place that the ducks wanted to go to more and being able to set up with the topography, because you know they've got a hills and and most of that stuff, you know, and you got to set up correctly with the hills to get the ducks to come into you. So you know that, and I've had outfitters up there tell me that's the main advantage, or one of the main advantages of mojos in that particular case is because they may not set up exactly on the X. And then two, if you watch those, if you go on the scouts with them up there, you watch them. You know, a lot of those ducks would be scattered all over that field. And so the other advantage of the, of the mojos is it's bringing them all to one, one common point there. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the other major factor in that, uh, in that whole scenario is the fact that those are, for the most part, unpressured ducks. And so they will land right on top of a mojo. You know, the guy that we hunt with the most up there, he uses, he don't put out any duck decoys. He put out full body goose decoys and four mojos. That's his standard setup. <laughs> uh, you hear a lot of people talk about the amount of mojos they have in the spread. And do you even need a a standard decoy in the spread? Now, yeah, if you're mix, if you're hunting a combo and you have some Canada goose full bodies and some silhouettes out there, that's going to you know that's going to finish Canada geese. But yeah, I I I I, I think I agree with you a hundred percent on they that they're just uneducated young ducks. But man, Terry, I've had it in I've had a late November, early December in North Dakota, 
different parts of North Dakota that really aren't the prime spots of North Dakota where most tourists go or out-of-staters go, where it's the same thing, where those ducks have been there for a minute, and maybe they're not seeing, maybe there are a lot of young ducks mixed in, but they it's just like it, it, it's a, a golden rule or it's a guarantee that if you don't have that mojo going, they will not finish where you want them. And what you and I do and what you've been doing for so much longer than I have is documenting these hunts, right? So the idea of getting these birds on camera and you guys have beautiful videography and slow motion with high speed cameras and Nate and, 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 and all of the guys do a great job there. But with the cameras, we're trying to get them into that pocket, that kill zone, that right there where the viewer can see it and become part of the hunt Without the mojos, I don't think that we would be able to successfully do that on a daily basis consistently like we do and we have over the last 10 years. And I think that if you take the cameras away from it, it's taught me to be a, a more, have the ideology of like, look, those ducks are going to finish if we do these things that we have, you know, have in mind when we are filming them. And I don't think you can finish many, as many ducks in dry fields with a without a mojo that you can with one or several mojos running and i don't know if that's if that's a true statement when they get a little bit more educated or not but i've hunted pretty educated ducks in nebraska and then kansas in december and january and when you turn that mojo off they're gone they don't they will not finish they're in the area and they're working but they will not finish if you have it in your head that you need to turn it off because they've been there seen that before yeah, I, I didn't mean to say anything that disagreed with that statement. If I did, I apologize. But, uh, you know, I agree with you. My point was we were discussing Canada. And uh, in Canada, for the most part, you know, they're not pressured or they're not pressured to anywhere to the extent that they're pressured down in the whole Mississippi flyway. And so, you know, those ducks uh, not only are attracted to mojos, but they are they, they still want to finish right on top of them. I mean, right on top of them. You know, we get some of our best uh, video. You know, we like to shoot a duck hovering over a mojo, obviously. You know, so that just, that's just cool to do that. It's easier to do up there than anywhere else you, you would want to go because they're, they're, they are not yet hard hunted and they highly attracted to mojos. But I agree with you in dry field fit. And dry field hunting, uh, somehow they are more attracted to mojos, and uh, and that may not be a good statement. The attraction part of that may not be a good statement. They are more prone to want to finish right on top of a mojo in dry fields than they are in water fields. I, I can't explain why that is, but I've, I've witnessed it. Well, they work different. You know, a lot of times they do the false runs, and they work more, you know, horizontal in – it, you know, contradictive to more vertical over water. A lot of times over water, you don't see ducks make those real long, you know, way out in front of you and stay low and then come in and then make a false run and then go out again like they do over a dry field. The mojo's obviously keeping their attention. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a it's a phenomenon to me because it's like they 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 land in water as much as they land in a dry field, probably more so in water on any given day throughout their lifetime. Why are they more hesitant to finish over water as they are over dry fields? Is it because of the, the cyclone effect that the mallards get into over dry fields where 10 becomes 200 in a hurry, becomes 1,000, and then, you know, you see those big, big grinds and those big cyclones of ducks, you know, funneling down into a cornfield, and that, and that just keeps their, that spinning wing is that effect of that cyclone that's continuing, so every time they go out and they turn their head a little bit and they their peripheral vision, they see that flash, and it's automatically telling them that they got to keep joining the big cyclone that's, that's getting ready to get into that dry field, 
where they don't see that over water as much. Over water, they might be going back to the day loaf in smaller groups. They might be going back to the night roost in smaller groups. I don't know. I mean, do you think that that might have something to do with it? Well, seems like it would. I mean, I, I don't really know. It's a very interesting point you bring up. But, uh, you know, overdrive fields, you know, they will get in those large groups. I've seen them in Canada when I bet there was 500 mallards in one group. You know, by the time we shot the front end of the of the group, you could barely see the back end of the group, you know. And, um, of course, we don't get that down in the in the lower part of the states. They just don't get in that bigger groups down here. And uh, but, you, but you are correct. You know, they like to fly around, circle around, look, look. Which is bad for duck hunting if you're if you're over water, and especially if they're if they're pressured over water. So I don't really know the answer to your question, but it's a very interesting point. That you it make. is. It's I'm gonna. I, I, it's it's why we hunt. It's why I hunt. I mean, I just try to figure that out. And what talk to me about how you educate somebody on a cloudy day? Do you leave it in the truck, the mojo I'm referring to? Do you take it to get that long range attractant because they're still going to be able to see that flash on a cloudy, overcast, maybe a low ceiling day? What are some of the things a, a duck hunter can do to maximize his his you know his success rate with the mojo on that type of a weather condition? Well, as we all know, you know the ducks are easier to decoy on a bright, sunny, clear, cold day. Uh, you know the ideal duck day is front comes through. You know, heavy rain, you know, warm air in front of it, cold air in back of it. It brings fresh ducks in. Next day is a cold bluebird day. You know, they're easier to uh, decoy on those days, and you have to go to less trouble to decoy them on those days. Now, on the cloudy days, low ceiling days, you know, they're they're just much harder to decoy from a number of different aspects. Uh, you know, there are days when you can't haul it, when it's low season, you can't haul it, blow your call at them. You know, you blow the call and you can hear that call sound echoing off those clouds up there. And the duck jerks like you shot at him, you know. You're not going to call a duck in on those days. And and something keeps the spinning wing decoy from uh, functioning as efficiently on those days also. And and what we do is we, we make a, uh, we call it a cloudy wing, a cloudy day wing. And all we do is we just uh, we just soften up the, the strobe a little bit. You know, the the white is not as white. It, it act, actually, what we do is put a put a softer color on it that that has a texture. And so, you know, that that wing is reflecting light. And so, if a real light comes down, it hits a a hard, clean surface. It reflects back kind of like a a pool ball would. If you have a texture on it, then it breaks up that. That, that light ray and, and makes it uh, uh, diffuse in different directions. And we do that and it helps. But, uh, you know, cloudy day, you're probably just not going to decoy them as quite as good as you're going to do on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a clear day. But that's what we do. We use cloudy day wings on cloudy days. Have you ever done it to where you use overhang or maybe get subtle flash where you put a <clears throat> on water, I love to use the floating mojo, right? So I'll put it under some overhang up against the bank to where when they're working, they're seeing like there's a couple ducks underneath that overhang staying out of the bird's view or an eagle or a hawk or, you know, bird of prey. They're in there just messing around, flat splashing water, maybe getting ready to take a nap. And I think that that's realistic and natural. So do you use the natural vegetation and overhang some also? Oh, absolutely. I guess back to the say that I had earlier in the podcast here where, you know, uh, early season, put them right in the killing hole, mid season, put them outside your spread, you know, late season, try to, you know, hide them under a bush or something. And that, and that's basically what we do. And it just breaks up that flash because, 
uh, that also uh, uh, mixes in with the statement I had that they will learn in a, a, a certain period of time that as they get close, that spinning wing decoy is probably making more flash than a duck could make. And if you watch a live set of ducks, and you've heard me say this before, you know, it's not just one big constant flash like that. It's a it's a, a multitude of little bitty uh, short intermittent flashes that pass through the flock of decoys. That's what uh, led, led us to the point of developing the flock of players. And so, yes, if they if if, if you if need be, and the hunter can determine if it needs to be or not just by studying the attitude of those ducks, then you know, you can do something to diminish the flash on that and putting it up under natural vegetation and things like that will do it. Okay, you just brought up another big-time point, but I'm going to hold off on that one for one more question on the product you just mentioned. What was your theory? Give me the lowdown on the flock of flickers. Why? What did you see when that when that idea popped into your head? What were you thinking when you started to develop this product? And what are you going to tell the end consumer or the duck hunter as the essential part of a mojo goes and flash and attract it in motion in your decoy spread? How do you use a set of flock of flickers? They come in, they come in different size packs. Um, guy, I've seen guys use up to 18 of them in a spread. I've seen seven or eight, 10 of them on water, up to 18 on dry fields. What were you thinking when you developed this product? You kind of just touched on it in your last statement. When, when did this happen? And how do you tell somebody to capitalize with the flock of flickers? Well, uh, quite a few years ago, uh, we would watch uh, a video that we shot of uh, ducks uh, on the water, on the dry ground, landed in the water, coming and going and whatever. And if it's low light, that's where we first noticed that a flock of ducks gives off these small, random, intermittent flashes. Just I kind of liken them to lightning bugs, fireflies, if you will. You know, you see a bunch of lightning bugs, fireflies out there, it's just a little flicker, 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 flicker. That's what a real set of ducks look like. It's hard for the human eye to detect that in good light. And so we have uh, uh, taken our video and put filters over the top of it until we just diminish the video until it becomes real obvious. So what I, I started having that thought about the same time that we started having the thought that that a- after they're hunted so long, pressured as you and I call it, you know, the, these ducks will get to where they were, don't want to land on top of a mojo. And that brought me to the thought of, well, that mojo is producing more flash that a duck could produce. And so somehow we need to break that flash up into little intermittent flashes. And from that came the flock of flickers. And they come six to a pack. And uh, if you, uh, it, it, what we do with them is we don't necessarily put them in the killing hole. We put them uh, in the, amongst the decoys. And so when you said you see people use as much as 18 of them, that'd be three packs of them. Just scatter them amongst your static decoys so it makes your static decoys look like uh, that it's giving off these random flashes. Uh, and, you know, one thing that flock of flickers taught us is that you don't necessarily have to have the motion in the decoy itself. You, you just need the motion and you need the decoy, not necessarily together. And the birds can't seem to relate to that. So you can scatter these little flickers throughout your decoy spread into the ducks it apparently looks like the decoys are making these little flashes. I love them. And I, you know, I, I want to talk about, and you, I went to meet with you in Vegas at SHOT Show. You weren't feeling good that day. We said hello, but 
I had rock. I was sick as I've ever been. I had. I, had, <laughs> I remember how sick you were. I wonder if that was the virus. I don't know. They said that you could have had it in January, December. At um, I had. I talked to three people the day before yesterday. Two in Iowa and one in in Nebraska that, that went to Shot Show, and they said they all got that sickness, the flu symptoms and cough and all. Well, this is a different subject, but they said they got back from Shot Show and they had it. And that's people, you know, they're saying that you could have been getting it, you know, as early as dece- late December, January. Anyway, well, that's been suggested before, but you know, I was diagnosed uh, by one doctor in Las Vegas at the Shot Show, and and my my doctor here in Monroe. Uh, after I got home, and both of them diagnosed me with a uh, sinus infection, and sinus. I never had a fever. You never, never had a had fever. fever. Okay. So, uh, you know, it, it, if I had a gotten the, uh, the the coronavirus, there I could have infected sixty five thousand people. Sixty five thousand. I'd probably be dead today. We wouldn't be talking. About it. <laughs> not not from the virus from somebody killing me. Um. But you have a product out there that's specifically for geese and that we used it this year. And I've been sworn by kind of a mob kind of a style deal, Mr. Denman. Like uh, if you say anything about these, how good they are, we're going to you'll end up seeing a Cadillac pull up in front of your house with Joe Pesci with a baseball bat in the in the back seat. So I just keep my mouth shut about that product. If you want to talk about it, you can. But I was on several hunts this year and absolutely amazing results, like unbelievable on geese. That I've, you know, that, that this guy that, you know, that I've introduced you to in California, he said without him, the results weren't going to happen. So anyway, we, I don't know if we should touch on it cause I don't want to die, <laughs> so, <laughs> but it is well, your product and it's out you there. Just, you just tell him, you tell him he's, Denman said it. I didn't say yeah. it. Go kill, go kill Mojo. Yeah. You know? So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a thought that came from the flock of flickers. You know, once it occurred to me that that you don't have to have the motion necessarily attached to the decoy. I said, okay. And we've been under pressure uh, ever since we've been in business, which was 1999 to develop an efficient uh, goose product that works. And we played with this and we played with that. We brought one out on the market and it it worked okay. Uh, It wasn't great. And uh, so I just said, well, until I can uh, develop a, a product that actually works, I'm just not going to put it out there. You know, you can make these flappers, these mechanical flappers and, you know, different things like that. They got them where they take a static decoy and they just turn the decoy back and forth and add some motion to it. And I can't say that those things don't help, but they're not revolutionary. They're not changing the game by any means. So once I saw that you could scatter these pocket flickers amongst the decoy, I said, why couldn't you scatter something, uh, uh, amongst the goose decoys it makes the goose decoys themselves look to the goose like they're moving like they're live like they're mad and so we we developed a a number of different things and we actually took them to canada right before the week before season started in alberta canada we took we took them up there and uh, you know those birds had not been hunted at all and we'd put out a spread and we'd put the we'd put our uh, prototype uh, experimental prototypes out in the spread and we'd back off so there wasn't any hunters close to the spread, you know, and, and kind of see if, if they could have an influence. And of the various devices that we tried, just a little bitty mini flag, just like the big flag that you know that people's been waving at geese for many, many years, seemed to seemed to work the best. And one thing that we were really surprised at is the ducks worked them about as good as the geese worked. Uh, we did a hunt in uh, Alberta uh, with the first prototypes of these we had, and we put them all on one side 
of the decoys. We had the typical, either U or a V or something, I don't remember which one it was, and uh, equal amount of decoys on both sides. And we put all of the, of the flags on one side. And we had a lot of ducks and a lot of geese. And the geese were coming from almost straight to us. The ducks were coming from the right. And they all, and, and, well, that's not correct. About 75% of them went over and landed on the side that had the flags. And so we said, well, I think there's something to that. Yeah, I think there are too. And was that mainly Canada's that you were getting to do that in that part of Canada? Or were the specs? It was, it was graders and lessers. Because these were specs and snows that were just daily giving it up. Like totally yeah. changed the results of the hunt. And mm-hmm. anyway, I, I just I just think that it, when you start to see drone footage of the this product we're referring to, and I'm not going to say it, you can again, but when you see drone footage of it, it's amazing how much waddling is going on. It just looks like a bunch of goose butts walking around looking for the next piece of grain or whatever food sources in that field to pick up and eat. So another awesome product. So the other thought I had when you were talking is you mentioned um, – different species that you have. I've talked a lot in depth over the last few years and I saw it big time again in California this year, put out two dozen spoonbill greenhead gear decoy floater decoys way out, out of shooting distance just to, you know, give it more color and vibrance in the spread. The spoonbills would land right with them trying to get some kids, some ducks. They would land way out there with that species sprig we put a little pile of sprig amongst all of these speck floaters and mallard floaters the sprig we're landing with the sprig decoys the white does attract other species of ducks but species specific is what i'm talking about here what does it matter in the mojo because now this attractant they can't tell from a mile away that that's a gadwall or a teal or a spoonzilla or a mallard or a king mallard or a hen to a drake is it is it consumer based of giving the consumer more choices to have a different species or do you really think that a wood duck is going to attract wood ducks more so than a mallard would in that hole with the wing spinning or these or these different species have different wing speeds what would you is it is it something to tell the consumer hey we have options here depending on where you're hunting and what you're hunting or does it really matter I have always believed that it probably doesn't matter. If it, if it matters, it doesn't matter a lot. Uh, and, you know, that's based on exactly what you said. You know, when that strobe of, uh, tracks them from a long distance off, they can't even tell there's a decoy body there. Uh, you know, all they see is a strobe. It's like a strobe light. I call it a strobe because it, if you back off from it, you know, uh, you need to be off a quarter of a mile the minimum. A half is better. You see it from a mile. You just see it looks like somebody's got a strobe light over there on the timer going on and off like you was at a, you know, a, a airport or something with a track and something. So at that point, the decoy body obviously doesn't matter. Up close, you know, it probably could, uh, you know, for years and years. Uh, you know, the only decoys we had were mallard decoys. It don't matter what we were hunting. We had, we just had mallard decoys, put out mallard decoys, and we killed, you know, teal, gadwalls, uh, uh, spoon, uh, spoonbills, pintails, uh, uh, widgeon, all that, all with mallard decoys. Uh, now, you know, I like to use other types of decoys because I think as uh, as the pressure picks up, hunting pressure picks up on these decoys, I think little things become important. And I don't think that that's a huge thing. It was on the day you're talking about. It was obviously a huge deal that day, but day in and day out, I don't think the species is a huge deal 
but sometimes just little bitty things are the difference between uh, success and not success. So when you mentioned till, as many days as you've hunted the early September season in different states, such as Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas, a lot, were you having the same success in the early 2000s, the 99 to let's say 2010, as you did after you came out with the Mojo Teal? Did the Mallard decoys have the same effect on those large groups of, of early season teal that the teal decoys deal with the wing speed of them? You know, I don't think they, I don't think they, uh, I don't think that they did. I don't think the Mallard decoys did have as good effect on the blue wing teal, the early blue wing teal. And, uh, you know, back then, a dozen, a dozen uh, teal decoys used to cost, you know, $50. And I'm talking about if you bought the ballot, it was 1995, you know. And so they were kind of expensive, so everybody didn't have a lot of teal decoys. You know, we took whatever these are, 16-ounce Coke bottles, you know, whatever the, the biggest of the little ones, you know. We, we took those and painted them black and mixed them up with what teal decoys we had. So I think when you're hunting nothing but teal, like in the early blue wing tail season, I think species specific becomes a bigger deal at that time. And no, we did not kill as many back then as uh, as we did once we got spinning wing decoys to go in it. Uh, however, you know, uh, early blue wing tail season is uh, feast or famine. You know, you go down there one day, there's no tail around because they're just hopping their way down south. And so they may not stay at any one location, but a day or two or three or four, they'll stay there for a long time until you say you get to the South Texas coast and the Louisiana coast and places like that. Then they'll stay there and stage until they go into uh, 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 South, uh, Mexico and Central America. Uh, so once you put those uh, mojos out in it, then, you know, those teal for the first hour or two of the morning, you know, they just buzzing around from water hole to water hole to water hole. Well, it certainly helps them see your water hole. And, you know, we don't have a lot of water uh, uh, in most places that we hunt back then. That's, uh, you know, uh, in the month of September. Month of September is still farming time down in, down in this country, so there's not a lot of water around. And so you want them to be able to, to know that your water's there and that there's ducks there and come there, and that's what the mojo does for When you start getting product-specific, the last three years, the King Mallard was introduced to the market. You had you, um, you had the Mojo Mallard for years. A lot of things have been changed to where when I talk to the guys at Benelli, and you know the Benelli family is, I'm like, well, you, how can you make the Super Black Eagle 2 any better than it already was? And then they did it, right? This The King Mallard is so awesome. The way you charge it now, the way the wings attach, the way the wings are easier to pull off, the storage systems that you guys have created with the bags and the backpacks, um, everything that's it, the, the sound of it, the quality and the quietness of it, the the realism of it, just the the you know the strength and the durability of it. Now it's just the the anatomically pose, you know, the poses and the texture of it are different and better. Can you improve on that? Is there innovation coming down the pipeline through Terry Demon and the Mojo Crew? And what do you tell the end consumer about that Mojo Mallard? And you can touch on the Elite Series too, Mr. Terry, but what what can they do now as far as just upkeep 
when they get that Mojo Mallard now, that King Mallard, what is what are they going to have now as a product? They're going to spend a pretty good bit of money. It's still very affordable. It's it's going to be something that is going to you know give them a lot of success. But as far as maintenance goes, what is different different about the King Mallard, the durability of it, and what would you tell that end consumer to do to take care of that? Hunt over it every day. What do you do after, etc. Well, it, uh, you mentioned the original Mojo Mallard. You know, it was an extremely durable product. Uh, uh, we still get them back in from the very first year we made them, 1999. I've seen them in South America, the first one still still going down there. And there wasn't much in there to, to go wrong. If you didn't have a electrical switch problem or something, you couldn't hardly make the motor not run. Uh, the original ones had aluminum wings, and aluminum wings were great back then because I think in the early days of spinning wing decoys, you couldn't generate too much flash. And of course, aluminum is going to be more reflective than, say, you know, core glass plastic, you know, the things that different wings are made out of today. So that was a great product. But it, its design, uh, by design, uh, was not the best in the fact that we took a hollow. A rigid decoy body, and we attach the motor to the decoy body. Then we attach the decoy body to the support pole. Uh, and you know that you, if you just think about how any motorized product that you know, let's take vehicles for example, a car, truck, motorcycle, tractor. It doesn't matter what you want. You know, none of them are built like that. You know, the motors hooked to the, the transmission is hooked to the chassis. You know, the chassis is hooked to the ground support, usually through springs and a, and a shock absorber. So that was the thought that got us from the original Mojo Mallard to the King Mallard. Uh, and, of course, you know, people want convenience now. The best example in the whole world, bottle of water. You know, so if you calculate how what the value of that water in a bottle of water is, it's it just um, it, it, it's just it's, almost nothing. It's amazing but that yeah, we buy people, it, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, people pay a dollar and eighty cents for a bottle of water, you know, yeah. and they think it's uh, it's it's healthier when there's there's no regulation testing bottle of water. You know, yeah. you take it out of your tap in any any uh, public water system in the United States now, it's been tested and proved to be proved to be safe, but it's convenience. That's what they want. They want convenience, you know. So uh, the design of the elite did several things. Uh, you know, we, we have the flexible body and we have the motor and, and the battery mounted into the housing. The housing is attached to the support pole. Then the flexible body is just wrapped around it. You could hunt with it without a body. Uh, and that's what made it smoother, faster, whatever. But with convenience, with the plug-in battery and those type conveniences come some uh, uh, some drawback, you know, everything in life's a compromise. And uh, uh, it, as opposed to the old spades that you used to have to stick on the mojo mount, you'd have to stick the spades on to the, to the battery, you know, that was a better connection. And we out hunting for the most part in an extremely moist environment, not necessarily if you're in dry fields unless it's raining or has rain, it's muddy, you know, moisture in the air and whatever. So, you know, they're going to get moisture on the inside of them. And, and those terminals in, in, in the presence of moisture are going to corrode. You can't keep them doing that. There's nothing out there that we can find that would keep them corroding a little bit. So really about all a person has to do that say he owned the King Mallard is that if he'd take his battery out 
when he got through, every time when he got through hunting and let the thing dry out on the inside and not sit there and all that with all that moisture on the inside and corrode, you can clean the corrosion off and it'll go back to work. It's just you get out there and your battery's not making good connection. It's no different in your car, or your truck, or anything else. You know, you let moisture get around your terminals or you let your terminals come loose, they're going to get corrosion between them. So um, I, I don't know any solution. Uh, we've been working from an engineering point of view on seeing if we could identify some materials that were available that would be uh, less uh, prone to corrosion. But we haven't come up with anything uh, yet that's an improvement over what we got. But we'll, we'll keep working on that. But if they just take their battery out, store it, let it, let the battery terminal dry, and let the inside, let the moisture dry on the inside of the thing, then they'd be fine. Does everything you just said, Mr. Terry, pretty much go for the Elite Series also? Yeah, they're, they're, they're all alike. Now, now you know, part of those Elite Series operate on a plug-in four AA battery uh, holders. And, uh, uh, you know, people, there's different opinions out there as to whether they want a rechargeable or, or, or double A's. You know, people that hunt a lot tell me uh, that they'd rather have the double A's because it's easier for them to, to just stick four AA batteries and they'll run two or three hunts on one set of four AA batteries. They just charge those batteries all the time. But there's other people who said, no, I'd rather charge the batteries. So, you know, that's just chopping vanilla. That's Ford and Chippewa's. Anything we can, we can do about that. But the little four AA battery holders are probably a little more prone to corrosion than would be the the big rechargeable batteries in the, in the uh, uh, King Ballard. So same thing. If they just unplug that, lay it on the shelf, and let it dry between hunts, then, you know, it, it would lessen the amount of trouble they'd ever have with that. Other than that, you know, I don't know a whole lot that you can do to improve upon upon uh, uh, those elite series. There are some things, and we I, I, I can't give them away to you now. We are working on them. Uh, but, you know, that thing was designed it, it, to, to run faster, quieter, and smoother. That's what you accomplish by by putting the motor and the transmission and all that stuff in that housing, hooking that housing directly to the pole, and then wrapping the flexible skin around it. It's faster, smoother, quieter. And it, uh, it happens to also look better. That flexible skin looks a little more, more realistic than does the hard body molded decoys. Big time. So you touched on it right there. Is there anything that you can let out of the bag right now for Mojo fans and customers that is coming this fall that they're going to see in the Max Prairie Wings catalog, Cabela's catalog, uh, or is it is is it going to be a shot show announcement? Is there anything that it, that you could tell anybody that that's not going to be proprietary? Yes, uh, we we had worked on a uh, a we call it a swimming system, and it will swim about. Um, up to about 10 decoys, just static decoys. It'll swim them, you know, back and forth, and it looks extremely realistic. And, uh, you know, they had some devices like that uh, on the market, and but they're basically a motorized jerk cord. And, you know, jerk cord has been one of the most useful uh, tools that was ever devised in uh, duck hunting, uh, in duck hunting over the water. Uh, and, uh, you know, I use them, I like them, but, you know, jerk cords, you've got to be careful if the ducks are close. You can't scare the ducks if the ducks are close with it because it's a jerk. You know, it's a, it's an unnatural movement. Basically, you just make it water motion out of it, you know. This thing just swims the ducks back and forth, just swims them back and forth. And uh, uh, because, of the, because of the coronavirus and it all over the globe, uh, uh, you know, we didn't, we had that product at SHOT Show. And it is it will be available this fall, uh, but uh, it, it doesn't have great distribution simply because 
the coronavirus shut down everything. And so we just couldn't, we couldn't get them here in time. A lot of, and, a lot and, of the so, things you see with the system, like you're describing, become a pain in the, you know, what, because of the, the wiring, the cords, the hookup apparatuses, the decoys having to come off every day, um, you know, tangled up the mess that it could, that, that it could create in the long run. Duck hunters, a lot of times have the mindset like we can set it up and it'll look good during the hunt but after man we can't wait to get to the cafe and get some biscuits and gravies in our bellies so we are going to rush the 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 breakdown right you see it probably all the time um the secret is not to rush that and to be patient and just put things back the way that you found them like your mom and dad taught you when you're a kid uh what do we have to look forward to this one is it is it like the your 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 platform and your ideology with all of your other products and your approach to business of making it easy for the hunter? Well, we, we gave that a lot of thought, Chad, and we made it this as easy as we could, but you know, it takes about 20 foot of cord to mount these, uh, uh, 10 duck, 10 decoys. It takes about 20 foot of bungee cord to stretch them. So you got 40 foot of cord there. After that, it's just a box on a pole. You stick the box on the pole, stretch the cord out there. You can set it up in about, uh, um, if you, it, I don't know the first time may take you a little more, but once you learn what you're doing, you set it up in five minutes. Uh, how do the ducks attach to the bungee, to the, the cord? I mean, is it a, is it a rubber band system? Is it a swivel system? No, it, no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a stainless steel snap swivel. Snap swivel. So you, you can snap them on there. Quick on and off. Uh-huh. Quick, uh, quick on and off. And you know, it, it's going to be. It'd probably take you about the same amount of time to set it up as it would be to throw out two or three dozen decals. What's this product going to be called? It's called, um, you know, I, I should know that, Chad, you know. <laughs> I think we, you got so I think many products. The, the Bojo Swimming System. Swimming System. <laughs> So, Mr. Terry, at this age, at your age, and I'm not saying what your age is, I don't care, but you've had, it's fair to say that you have had at least 50 duck seasons under your belt. Is that fair to say? 50? Yes. Yes. 50 duck seasons. Yeah. Even though in my young, young, people don't, people don't uh, ever seem to, well, they seem surprised when I tell them this, but in my earlier days, I did more uh, big game hunting than I did duck hunting, even though we had a duck farm, so I duck hunted a lot. But still, I was big on the, you know, hunting, you know, mule deer. Okay, so it's elk, a two-sided question like then. At this stage in your hunting career, your experience, your personal hunts, duck hunting first, no, big game hunting first, and then go into waterfowl hunting. Because I know you love predator. I know you love to call a coyote. I know that you love a big whitetail and a big mule deer. And I don't know really where you are on turkeys. I think you enjoy them, but you're probably not that mad at them. That's my assumption. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But ducks, waterfowl, but first big game. At this stage in your life and your hunting career, are you as excited right now in April 2020 for this coming duck season? Because right now you'd probably be planning a trip to Mexico, Argentina, uh, Uruguay, Paraguay, Peru. I've seen you all over the Southern America map. You might be going to New Zealand. But I'm talking about this coming fall of 2020. Are you as excited for a deer tag or a call in a coyote as you were 25 years ago or 10 years ago and are you as excited to get to canada and see rob and the guys up at up at up at uh god dang it don't tell me the name of his company hi uh what is it 
Ranch, ranch, land. ranch land outfitters. Are you as excited ranch right now to go see Rob and the guys as you usually are to kick off your season? Or let's say the the blue wing teams, the blue wing teal season, which we were supposed to join you for in Texas last year, but the storms in Houston prevented that. Are you as excited right now at this point in your life as you've ever been? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely, I am. Uh, it, it never diminishes, uh, and and I didn't mean to say that I. I greatly preferred the big game hunting over the duck hunting. Actually, the big game hunting would occur in September and October, maybe a little bit in November. <clears throat> the duck hunting down where I'm at back then, in the early days, I didn't travel to duck hunt as far as I do now. Uh, you know, it, it's going to occur in November, December, January. So I could actually do do both of them. But, uh, you know, what's at the top of my list today, even though I do many things, uh, is uh, is ducks or waterfowl? If you want to say that instead of ducks, you know. And uh, well, wait, be, be specific, real quick. We'll get into coyotes in a second. You, your ducks. Do you, I know you enjoy the goose occasionally, but uh, but you're 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 not going to sit here and tell me that you are a goose hunter by any means. You're a duck hunter first and foremost, but you'll shoot a goose if it crosses paths with you. I love shooting geese. I don't know a whole lot about them. I don't know how to call them. I don't know a whole lot about decoying them, but I love to shoot them. And, uh, and of course, you know, that's one reason I worked on the goose product <laughs> so much, you know, and so now the flags, you know, give me an excuse to go goose hunting, you know, uh, under my mojo hat. So I can, I can now go goose hunting. Other than that, we were mostly in a duck business, so I was expecting to go duck And now you said something that we both share this passion, and I wish I got to do it more, but there's something about calling a coyote, a predator, a bobcat sneaking up on you. You even have footage of, of cougars. So does my brother's now. The Mojo products have absolutely revolutionized that. This is the essentials of duck hunting, but I will touch on that, that a charging coyote to a Mojo decoy with the sound, whether it's the new triple thread or um, you know whether it's, it's one of your just decoys, with a mouth call mixed in, which I still love to mouth call myself. Shotgunning coyotes is unbelievable as far as the hunting culture goes. It's if you haven't done it, there's there's probably like mallards in your spread and the, the sound of their wings, and it's always going to get me. But when it happens in that coyote, a, a single, a double, a triple, <laughs> you've seen it all. There, it's hard to beat that. And I and you've and you've hunted the dangerous five. You've hunted uh, crocodiles. You've hunted water buffalo. You've hunted moose. You've hunted all the biggest, the big. There's you've hunted grizzly bears, you've called bears, you've you've done it. There's nothing. It's tough to beat a charging coyote. Am I right? That, that's that's absolutely right. I don't know exactly what it is about it, but you know there was kind of an evolutionary process that brought me to this point. Uh, I've, I've called predators ever since I was in high school, and with a mouth, all has a mouth call and a you know a rifle and a light. But uh, when I started going west uh, hunting antelope, mule deer, and things like that, you know, I got into electronic calling of coyotes. And uh, but still, I liked it back then. But it wasn't anything like shotgun coyotes. You know, we wasn't calling them up that close. And it actually came about when we developed a Mojo Critter decoy. And you familiar with that? That's the little oh, yeah. uh, 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 speedometer spring type deal. Uh, what we found out was that you couldn't hardly put that coat and walked on to it. You couldn't hardly stop it. And in fact, a, a couple of the, you know, pro boys that we worked with back in those days, they told me, said, well, then, but you know what we don't like about your decoy? I said, what's that? We can't stop the coyote to get a shot at him. But they were all rifle shooters. And they wanted to whoop him to a stop out there at 7,500 yards shooting with a rifle. So I said, well, 
I know the fix of that. Let's just don't stop it. Because we were trying to always trying to get them up to the decoy anyway, so we get footage of them, you know, together, you know, photos of them together. So we started carrying a rifle and a shotgun on every stand. And once we got to shotgun them coyotes, you know, that's like a that's like another sport. Now I don't have any problem. You know, I've got friends that do long range coyote shooting. They want to shoot them at a thousand yards. That's okay. I don't have a problem with that. I want people to go hunting as long as it's moral, ethical, and legal. I want people to go hunting, doing anything they can hunt, you know. But calling that dude up to 35 yards and you're left, he's running wide open and you roll him up with a shotgun. I mean, oh. your brother kills a lot of them. Clay kills a lot of them doing that. You know, that's a fantastic sport. But I wouldn't trade if they if they, if they had to pick, if they it said, okay, Jim, you can just hunt one thing for the rest of your life, I'd have to take ducks. Me too. But I love predator hunt. I love the idea of driving from stand to stand and getting a vantage point and just literally like, Ducks, you kind of have an idea. They've been there, you know. They're they're there. Coyotes, you, they they could be in the country, but they'll come from a mile away, two miles away. You know, depending on the wind and the weather and the cross, whatever it is, it's it's an eerie feeling because a lot of times they see you before you see them. You know, I, I would assume that you probably can't prove that, but you do bust a lot of them. Some of them backdoor you. They get downwind of you and wind you, but it's it's a different type of sport because they are ducks are 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 hunting. Um, ducks are hunting you, but coyotes are really, really hunting you. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And you mentioned before, I kind of, I like to go call in dangerous game. I called a crocodile, uh, in July in Mozambique, Africa. I didn't kill it. Uh, I, 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 before I left to get there, I knew that I couldn't call one and kill it because the river we was on the famous Zambezi river tons of crocodiles. I've never seen so many crocodiles hippos my whole life. Uh, it was supposed to be real low, and then they crawl up on the sandbars and things like that. But it was out of its banks owing to just unseasonable rains uh, upriver. So you're not going to really call it out of the water onto the land. So you got to call it up into some shallow water. Well, we didn't have no shallow water to call it in. So by the time I got ready to go, I said, okay, I'm going to see if I can call one, and I'm going to just have to kill one. And I did that. I stalked one and killed it. And uh, but I called one uh, just as soon as I turned that call on that dude jumped off the bank and here he came. Was that so, was that's Rob good. Roberts over there with you? Rob Roberts was with me. That, that, that's a character, ain't it? He is now. He had a he just like had a ball. He had a ball. He, he, there, he, you know, so. I talked to him at least once a week, and he has still not quit talking about that trip. <laughs> no, he was uh, it was a joy to him. But say that you <laughs> know, and he was a different person than I've been around Rob a lot. You've been around Rob. He was a different person up there. He was just like exuberant, like you know? Rambo. I've never seen him like that. But uh, you know, I've called all three of the bears. I called a brown, and a grizzly, and a black bear up. I called a wolf. Uh, uh, I called. Uh, uh, I called a leopard. I went lion calling. I did call some lions, but I never called a big male that I could shoot. So I don't know if I can claim I called a lion or not. I didn't call the right lion. So that's been a charge in my life is to call those, uh, uh, you know, those dangerous games. I called a, uh, that, I called a grizzly bear came uh, about a half a mile, maybe further, I don't know, in uh, 22 seconds. Wow. Wow. Did you harvest it? Uh, yeah. Damn. Yeah. Big one? Yeah. They're all big. And, I don't think there's such thing yeah, as a yeah. small one. I called a brown bear up to 50 yards, and I called a black bear up to 27 steps. Wow. <laughs> Shot it. You know, Nate Nate was running the camera for me, you know, and he's sitting on up against a log. It's a little ways from me, and that bear is circling around the collar, and, and the 
process of circling around the car, he's coming straight at me, you know. And so uh, uh, I just let him come. I just let him come. But he kept going come. And so Nate told me later, he said, I hope it don't show up in the footage. But I kept saying, I wish you'd up shoot that third <laughs> Yeah, he might have had an accident. Well, Mr. Terry, <laughs> I appreciate it. This is uh, It's been a joy. We'll do it again. I got some other topics. I want to talk about the state of Mojo TV. We'll touch on Mike Morgan. We lost a dear friend of yours, a dear friend of ours. We're uh, we're dedicating the entire new season of The Foul Life, season 12, that starts airing this third and fourth quarter on the Outdoor Channel. Every episode is dedicated in memory of Mike Morgan. The first episode is our, our memories with him in Louisiana, North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Iowa, being with Mike in the truck, scouting um, some of the pranks he played on me. They don't come better than that man. I know that he was a dear friend of yours, and he battled for a while, and... I just hate, you know, it just sucks when you lose, when you lose a hunter, man, there's just something about a hunter leaving us that, that it's hard to take and hard to accept. But, uh, you know, he was one of the good ones. And I know you had a dear friendship with him for a lot of years and he's actually probably, I, I don't know if this is true, but tell me if I'm wrong. He's, he got you into outdoor television, right. And recording your hunts and filming your hunts. Oh, absolutely. did. Mike was part of a group that owned uh, very popular TV shows on the Outdoor Channel then called Hunting Across America and Fishing Across America. And uh, I met them. The first shot show I ever went to, uh, him and his partner showed up in our booth, in the Mojo booth, and needed some mojos because they had a place that they had hunted for many years, and they were kind of the king. This was public hunting. They were kind of kings of that because they knew it so well. Somebody started beating them real bad. They was killing more ducks than they were doing. Said, let's come out and see what that guy doing. Well, that guy had a mojo, you know. So, uh, so Mike and them had to have a mojo. So, uh, you know, we gave him a mojo, and I got to be friends with them. And I, you know, they they wanted me to go uh, make hunts with them, and. Uh, 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 film some with them. So I did that. I'd just be a guest on their show, but they end up talking me into joining that company, but that company, uh, they shut it down in later years as it got harder and harder to actually make a good profit out of outdoor TV. They shut it down. And then Mike came over to the Mojo crew at that time. And he, he was our producer, for, you know, for Mojo TV for, for many years. Uh, and then we, uh, he became the, our head of media, but you know, Mike was a absolute, pioneer in the outdoor filming industry you know he told me they learned how to film by putting a ladder stand up in their backyard and crawling up there filming things on the ground you know so he's got some crazy stories about that you know the outdoor channel uh, awards party now the sportsman and outdoor channel awards party he said the first one of those that they ever went to they went to some guy's hotel room and the beer was iced down in the bathtub and you know it looks like a hollywood <laughs> production that that's how far back he goes and he was around for a long long time yeah he was a dear he was awesome man yeah everybody loved michael he had such a personality you know i i traveled all over with him you know and uh we'd spend hours and days and weeks together and you know how it is when you when you're hunting you know it can get to be tough you know and it's just tough and uh and so you'll learn what kind of person a person is if you do that you know uh, and in 20 years of traveling with mike or 19 or whatever it was i never heard him complain not once. He never said a complaint. Even when, even when he yeah, was even when he was battling the last two three years. Well, now he I, I, he might have them, but I mean, as far as we're off on a hunt, right. in tough conditions, and when most people would be complaining. But you know, I had heard never, that I had heard that when he was in Canada last year that he just kept it quiet, you know, and they knew, but they that he just he just had that you know that strength, but. 
Yeah, I miss him. I think about him a lot, and I'm so glad that I have the pictures that I have with him and the memories and the documented hunts, and that's one of the main reasons I love to film is because we have it. You know, you, you can look back on it and pass it down to your kids or your grand, whatever it is. It's just like Mike's family, his wife, um, they have all of those memories of him on TV, whether it was his original shows or Mojo. And But yeah, so I, I'd like to get on again and talk about the current state of the TV business and what you're seeing and the, your show and who you're working with now and, and, and get after it. But I appreciate you coming on today with the Essentials of Duck Hunting Mojo Outdoors. Mr. Terry Demon, do you have any closing words? Well, I appreciate being on here. Chad, Chad, you've been one of the good friends I've had in the outdoor industry, and, and I just appreciate being – I just appreciate knowing you and being around you, and you've been good for the industry. Thank you so much for saying that, Mr. Terry. That means the world coming from you. You are an outdoor Hall of Fame member along with Mike Morgan, which is in Memphis, correct? Is that out of Memphis or Nashville? Nashville. Nashville. Out of Nashville. You guys were yep. both inducted into the Outdoor Hall of Fame, so that coming from you means a ton to me. Check out Mojo TV on the Sportsman's Channel and the Pursuit Network. Is that correct? Correct. Check correct. out mojooutdoors.com. The products speak for themselves. I don't hunt without them. Predator, turkey, ducks, now geese. Rocky, you didn't hear that from me. Terry said that today, so you can find him in uh, Monroe, Louisiana right down there. I dare you to go down there. They got a lot of guns. Guys, this has been another episode of the Foul Life Podcast, The Essentials of Duck Hunting. Today's episode, again, was brought to you by Terry Demon, Chuck Smart, the late Mike Morgan, the entire Mojo Outdoors crew, Miss Stevie Fry. What's her new last name? Miss Stevie? Uh, Bearfield. Bearfield. She, her, her husband's Kyle. He's in the outdoor industry. Thank yeah, you, guys. Kyle's now working for Mojo. He's working for Mojo now, too. So look yeah. at this. I mean, yeah. this is just a small yeah. circle. This industry is special. We're humbled by it. You're going to hear a song right now called My Foul Life by the rock band 2AM Logic. Thank you, guys. Continue to support the partners and sponsors that support us. Brown new, brand new episodes of The Foul Life airing right now exclusively on the Outdoor Channel. And you can find all of our content on My Outdoor TV. You can get a 30-day free trial right now. Mo TV myoutdoortv.com and check out all of our social media we got a lot of things going on can't wait to tell you more i'm chad belding the foul life podcast thank you all very much